Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your coach, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. Today's broadcast is entitled The Psychology of Influence, and it's inspired by a book called Influence by Robert Caldini. So we're going to do a two-part series so it's not too heavy and too much content. We don't want this to be a second job for you listening to the Brian Buffini Show. Now, a couple things. As I get into the content, I'm going to talk about concepts and techniques and things like that with regards to influence, with regards to persuasion. It's very, very important. I'm going to say this multiple times today in part one and when I cover part two, that it's very important that technique doesn't ever overpower intention. You can use the psychology of influence for good. You can use these same techniques for bad. Adolf Hitler was an extremely influential man who used very powerful technique. If you are studying public speaking, I could show you chapter and verse of techniques and methodologies that Adolf Hitler used to destroy the whole world. So when I share these principles that I've gleaned out of this book, I do it with a caution. It's very important that they're done for the right reasons and done in the right way. Persuasion is a very powerful thing when it's for the common good or a shared good or in service of another. Persuasion is an extremely bad thing if it's manipulative, trying to coerce or cause something to happen. Oh, I can get people to do what I want. No, great persuasion is getting people to do what they need to do. Now, that's what persuasion is. And as a salesman my whole life, I believe I've done that. I've helped people buy and sell homes. That was my career. And there were many times people needed what I called the necessary nudge. They told me what their goals were. They told me what their dreams were. They told me what their fears were. We found out what they could afford and what their long-term prospects were. And once we assessed the situation fully, there was on occasion, based on market forces, boy, this is the house for them. They love the house, but they're nervous. They're scared. Oh my gosh. There's many, many persons that I have made a lot of money for who I encouraged to buy a home, who was nervous and scared and who needed the necessary nudge. And they come back today Oh my gosh, I bought this condo in Hillcrest from you, Brian, for 127000 and today it's worth 800000 And I have hundreds of stories like that in my life. I've also heard hundreds of examples of, you know, Brian, you see that corner lot there? I could have bought that lot in 1979 for $39,000, but I didn't. And so there's people who weren't persuaded by a professional or someone who cared. And so they didn't take the action, and now they get to live with the regret. So that's the spirit that I'm bringing this information to you today. So I'm going to share techniques that are designed to coincide with the right intent and the right motivation. The desire to serve, the desire to help, not the desire to manipulate and mislead. So there it is. It's kind of like the warning label on the movie you're about to watch. So there are six principles in this psychology of influence, six principles of persuasion. And in part one, I'm going to cover three. Why? Because I like to cover three points. The six principles are reciprocity, commitment, 
social proofing, likability, leadership, and scarcity. And today I'm just going to focus on reciprocity, commitment, and social proofing. So let's talk about reciprocity. Something I've talked about, something I've written in books. We've talked about the law of the harvest. We've talked about the formula that we have at Buffini Company, which is give first, ask, and then grow your business. And in fact, uh, I just recently recorded episode 267 with Bob Bodine, one of my favorite interviews I've done since we started this podcast. Absolutely fabulous. And he wrote a book called The Power of Who, and that basically you know everyone you need to know to be successful. But he ultimately talks about how that's all built around the law of reciprocity. And reciprocity means that I'm going to sow seeds and trust there will be a harvest of some sort. It's giving without specific expectation, but knowing there is the promise of a result. And so we get into the law of the harvest. And by the way, we did an episode on this, episode 231, specifically devoted to this. We know that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap, right? There's just reaping and sowing. It's the law of the harvest. Like there's a law of gravity. If you plant seeds, something's going to grow, right? That's the law of the harvest. We're saying that in regards to influence, that you have to sow. Stephen Covey says it this way. You must prepare the ground, plant the seed, cultivate and water if you expect to reap the harvest. Ogmandino, one of my great heroes, said, what you plant now, you'll harvest later. So what are we talking about? Well, what are you planting? It could be goodwill. It could be encouragement. It could be service. It could be planting value. Giving, giving, giving. That's always where you start. But you just have to know that it's the law of the harvest. Bob Bodine said in our interview, Help your friends in every way possible. And when he said it, I just jumped out of my chair. It was so great to hear this hugely successful man who's had this great career say something I believed in my whole life. As a giver, yes, I have been taken advantage of. As a giver, I've sometimes found myself connected to takers. And the more I gave, the more they took. But ultimately, you've got to give. You know, here's a great example. For 25 years, our company served real estate, real estate, lending, and we've given and given. And we're a for-profit business. We have people who pay us for coaching. We have the finest coaches and the finest process for coaching ever developed for small businesses. Just cat out. It's the best anywhere in the world. It's phenomenal. People come and study our organization from all over the world. We have world-class training programs. So we've offered a great product and service to the market for years, and we've become a very successful company, no doubt. And along the way, our goal has been to serve our customers and also to serve our industry. The main player in our entire industry, not only the companies involved and so on and so forth, is the National Association of Realtors. Now, we have served the National Association of Realtors as a company for over 25 years. Not only have we never asked them for anything, we never even had a relationship with them. And after 24 years of serving and giving and serving and giving, they reached out to us. And they said, you know, we used to think you were kind of a threat to us. And now we realize you're like the greatest ally we ever had. So after 25 years of serving and giving and serving and giving, the National Association of Realtors comes to us and we end up forming a partnership. And in the 113 years of that organization's existence, they've never partnered with a coaching or training organization in any capacity. But they've watched us give and serve and give and serve and serve them and serve our community, and serve the companies we serve, and serve the individuals, and the brokers, and the agents. And finally, they said, 
we need to do some business with you. The law of reciprocity is very powerful. In our case, we weren't planting seeds that were like beans that were going to sprout up in a day. We were planting trees, and these trees were 25 years. Now, I know you're going, man, I don't have 25 years to plant in order to get a harvest. Well, you can plant the stuff that grows right away in mid mid times and something that takes a year and something that takes three years. In this case, it took 25 years. But you know what? It's the single biggest deal that can happen in our industry. Another verse that says, right after whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. That verse goes on to say, so let us never grow weary in doing good. Let us never grow weary in doing good because in due season, we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. So many people heard, oh, man sows what he reaps, but they never read on. One of the many confusions of reading theological works is that people don't read the context. Let us never grow weary in doing good, for in due season, we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. If you've been doing good for your family, if you've been doing good for your loved ones, if you've been doing good for your kids, if you've been doing good for your customers, if you've been doing good for your colleagues and co-workers, don't give up. The law of the harvest is a law. And if you give and give and give, eventually you will be seen, you will be acknowledged, and you will reap the harvest. It's just the truth. You give, you ask, and that's the second thing. Eventually you ask, and then you get to grow. Confucius said, there's one word which may serve as a rule of practice for all of one's life, reciprocity. That's in the 8th century. He wasn't selling best-selling books at the time. Jonathan Haidt said, reciprocity is a deep instinct. It is the basic currency of social life. I mean, phenomenal. It's actually built into people. And here's what's good. It's built into the right kind of people. Are there takers in this world? Yep. Are there people that no matter what you do and give and serve, that do not have it in them to give in return? They don't even say thank you. They don't even appreciate. They're just on to the next give, on to the next give. They don't appreciate or thank the give that was given. I recently have had this experience. I made a large donation to an organization, and I'm not kidding you. The guy that received the money said, man, I wish this had another zero behind it. He's kind of kidding, but he's kind of not. But here's the thing. Kind of sucks. Kind of sucks. So some people have found that style of persuasion to work for him. Let me tell you, it didn't work for me. I encourage you, you will find your tribe. You will find the right people. You will find the right reward. But don't give up. A little reciprocity goes a long way, said Malcolm Forbes. We talk about this law of reciprocity. The next dynamic in regards to this is commitment. In the book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, Caldini goes on to explain how commitment is a key ingredient in influence. And I want to talk to you a little bit about commitment, and I did before, right? We've covered 270 or so of these podcasts, so we have a few episodes, especially if you're newer to the show, that you can go back and chase down. I did an episode called No Plan B, which was episode 199. And it was a story of my daughter, Alicia, how her sister was the highly recruited volleyball player and was offered all these Division I scholarships and so on and so forth. And she chose to go to Point Loma. And Alicia wanted to play with her sister. The coach was not recruiting her. The coach didn't really think she fit into his scheme. She's five foot tall. And she was a setter. In fact, she's the all-time leading setter in the history of San Diego High School volleyball. Won four championships along with her sister. But she was going to switch positions to be a defensive player. She's short. She didn't fit the bill. Yada, yada. 
He wasn't looking for it. Normally, when you play a club sport, you're applying to all these colleges and all these universities. Alicia only applied to one. She put all her eggs in one basket, and she did it with her father's cheering her on all the time. Because I said, no plan B. No plan B. She just put all her eggs in this basket. It was the focus of her attention. She put it all in, and she was willing, listen, this is important, she was willing to accept the consequences if plan A didn't work out. She was willing to say, nope, I'm not going to get to go to college to play volleyball. I'm willing to have these circumstances not work out in my favor. I'm going to put it all in. You know what's wild today? I have four kids all down at the same college. We bought a house one block from the college. These four kids are living together. They're not in a cramped little dorm. They're having this great experience. And both my kids are playing on a fantastic volleyball program in a university that sits on top of the ocean here in the Pacific. It worked out. It was a great story. I'm thankful as a dad. It worked out for my daughter. And here's the thing. It was a grind. She had no plan B. She only applied to one place. She told the coach over and over again, I'm going to come play for you. You miss out on me, you're going to miss out on a great thing. The guy came up with all kinds of objections. The head coach, well, well, what if, you know, you and your sister like the same guy? And how do I coach twins? How does that work? I just don't have one player. I got this connected family. And he had a, a bunch of objections, but she was relentless in her commitment. And because of that, she made no option for herself. She made no option for him. He was either going to recruit her or not. No excuses, no other options, no plan B. Will Smith says there's no reason to have a plan B because it distracts from plan A. Bob Goff wrote, don't let uncertainty talk you into pursuing a backup plan instead of your purpose. Bob Goff is a great author. You know where he guest lectures? At Point Loma University, where the kids go. So kind of an interesting dynamic. The other dynamic about commitment is to be all in. Let me ask you an honest question. Have you ever been all in on anything? Are you all in into what you're doing now? Are you all in? Not just partially in. I got to tell you, there's just nothing like it. There's just nothing like it. I got to tell you, I'm all in on this podcast. You know, we don't run ads on this podcast. We don't get sponsorship on this podcast. I have a team of people. We have this studio. We pay all this money. We don't sell anything on this podcast. I'm all in on this podcast. I'm totally committed to it. Now, all I ask ever of you listening to this is if you hear a message that you think would bless somebody you know, that you tell, hey, I got this show I listen to. All I want to do is expand the number of people who get a chance to hear some really good stuff on a regular basis. And whoever and however many that is, I'm good with that. So I'm going to ask you, I'm all in on this podcast, and I'm all in in the preparation of it. And I'm asking you, are you all in on what your calling is and what you're supposed to do? I'll give you an example of all in, because many people think, oh, you know, Brian, you lived the life of Riley, you got the big company, you made all this money, and that's true, that's where I'm at today. But that's not what it was like. And I can tell you that being all in looked like this. Being all in meant my bride and I had to be all in while I traveled in the early days of this, 23 days a month on the road with six young kids, all in. Eventually, as my kids were going to high school and then sports, how do I do that? I had to buy a jet, not for lifestyles and rich and famous. And for a company our size, buying an airplane was ridiculous. But all in meant I'm in Houston in the morning and I'm coaching basketball that evening. We're all in. We're all in as a family, all in as a couple. And my kids were all in on it. They believed in what we were doing, impact and improving the lives of people, all in. I have a staff of people, all in. The coaches at Buffeening Company, all in. Let me tell you, coaching people is hard work. These coaches are all in. I'll give you a basic example. 
Long before the days of the Jets. I'm putting on this event called Mastermind. It's kind of our signature event every year. And I just really wanted to impact people. And I wanted to do something that would bless them. And so through a mutual connection, we had a chance to reach out to Neil Armstrong. And Neil hadn't done a public appearance in 15 years. And I've told stories, writing notes, and all these kinds of things. Well, here's the thing. The part I've never told is that Neil agreed to it. He said, okay, I'll do it, but I want $75,000. Now, back in those days, that was an extraordinary speaking fee. And it was kind of a speaking fee that said, I really don't want to speak, but if you pay me this kind of money, I'll come. Now, I want you to know what All In looks like. The year before we booked Neil Armstrong, Buffini and Company's net profit for the year was $75,000. So I made a decision, I think it was in 2003, and the 2002 earnings, I put all the chips on the table to get Neil Armstrong because I was so convinced that this would be just a breakout interview for our audience, a breakout experience for this event. By the way, we did. He agreed to come. We ended up having this great experience. Clips from that interview have made it into movies and on display at NASA. Our event, by the way, the previous year was 1,800 people. The year we had Neil Armstrong, it grew to 4,600 people. I was all in. Now, I'm not telling you as a business person to make stupid decisions or to do risky things, but I want you to know, I was convinced. I knew this would be a big thing for our company, a big thing for this event. And out of that, here came the opportunity. Since then, I've paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking fees to people, but I never paid anyone our complete earnings before. So Neil Armstrong, and by the way, to this day, the highlight of my career was interviewing that guy was having my family meet that guy. The highlight of the experiences of all the events I've ever done was the hour and 15 minutes with him on stage. And maybe it was because so much went into it, but so much came out of it. Again, the law of the harvest. You will always be rewarded. Reciprocity is there. People get into the real estate business, they'll be part-time. And I go, look, I understand it. We help people transition all the time, but it's very difficult for you to ask people to make the all-in commitment to purchase the single largest and most expensive asset of their life get into the single largest amount of debt of their life and be totally committed to you and you're not totally committed to the industry. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a place for part-time people, but I would say this, there's not a long-term place for you if you're a part-timer. Eventually, you got to get in or get out. Eventually, you got to get all in. Are you all in on your marriage and relationships? Are you all in on your health? Are you all in on your career? Are you all in for your customers? Are you all in? Commitment is the key. If you want to have influence, you got to be committed. Have no plan B and be all in. Andy Andrews says, when confronted with a challenge, the committed heart will search for a solution. The undecided heart search for an escape. Vince Lombardi said, most people fail not because of lack of desire, but because of lack of commitment. And Ken Blanchard, who I just had a chance to meet recently, what a beautiful human being, and by the way, lives right here in San Diego. A really phenomenal, phenomenal career and great business, great company said there's a difference between interest and commitment. When you're interested in doing something, you do it only when it's convenient. When you're committed to something, you accept no excuses, only results. And lastly, I'm going to talk about social proof, the third point in the psychology of persuasion. And I'll quote from Caldini himself. He said, social proof is the tendency to see an action as more appropriate when others are doing it. So this is something that is very, very powerful. It's to some degree conformity or what we see or what's socially acceptable, kind of a little bit of going along with the crowd. And we're going to talk about it. So just the points in regards to social proof is that if we're unsure, we'll go with the majority. The next thing we have to understand is that stories sell. 
And then a phrase I've said many times before, if they can do it, I can do it. So let's just kind of talk about that. If we're unsure, we'll go along with the majority. Well, Solomon Ash was a conformity expert. He did an experiment back in the 1950s. He was a psychologist. He put five people in a room to start with. Four of them were part of the experiment, and one of them was the unsuspecting subject. And they were then asked obvious questions. Ash found that the subject would change his answers to match the obviously incorrect answers that the other four gave. So there's five people in a room. There's obvious questions that are answered. These four people all give the wrong answers, and the one person who wasn't a plant in the room would change their answers to match up with other people. It's a very, very strong pull. And then he did it on a larger scale, and he saw it happen over and over and over again. There's a lot of reasons why. Because we think, well, I can't be right. They must know more than I do. And that's what he found out. So Ash asked the unknowing participants why they conformed. He found that people follow social proof for one of two reasons. They want to fit in with the group, or they believe the group is better informed than they are. And this happens all the time. Now, I always go out for advice and get input, and I've hired consultants throughout my career. I've get coaching, and it's very, very powerful. The big thing is you have to also be very committed to what you believe and what you know. You know, one of the concerns I have for our society today is that as we see more families kind of go through turmoil and strife, less of the family principles that people were raised with are there as an anchor for people. As people continually drift away from the sacred, especially things that are biblical principles, for example, these principles that have guided people for thousands of years, as those principles are not taught and reinforced, people in a lot of ways are becoming unmoored. They don't have the family principles. They don't have the the faith principles. Everything's becoming subjective. Everything's okay in the eyes of the beholder. So we're becoming a world that's increasingly, without objective standards, everything's subjective. This leads to a big conformity. That's why I'm not a big fan of where things have gotten to on social media. You'll see that conformity in our national news, where someone will use a phrase, and then every other reporter uses the same phrase. I saw this experiment done here. It was a few years ago, and it was a guy named Chris Matthews on a show called Hardball. He came out with this statement about some candidate, and he said he lacks gravitas. He lacks gravitas. Well, over the course of the next 72 hours, 28 different reporters and news organizations on their broadcast used the word gravitas. Now, you wouldn't hear the word gravitas in 10 years, but it was everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Why? Because Chris Matthews must really know something. And so we do this all the time. We discount who we are, we discount what we know, and we kind of go along with the crowd. Solomon Ash brought it down to a science. Your mother said it years before. Your mothers go, hey, you did it because your friends did it. If your friends put their hand in the fire, would you do it? We know peer pressure and fitting in with the crowd. We know it happens extensively in school, but it's beyond that. And it gets into peer pressure, where we live, how we dress, what we drive, all of these types of things. Influence is being aware of social proofing. Influence is not being subject to social proofing. Another great little dynamic here I want to share with you is this piece about if they can do it, I can do it. It's very, very important. The additional piece is, I did it before, I can do it again. If you've experienced some kind of success or progress in your life, hold on to that. Not in trying to return to that. I'm going to be very candid with you. I'll speak to my own story right now. And this is a story, such a story that I'm having to smash it up. So 
I was a pretty good golfer at one stage. In fact, when I was a kid, I thought I might be a professional. And I played golf at a very high level and I had a very low handicap. I came to the States, had the motorcycle accident. But when I came back, I really started playing golf and I got down to a one handicap, which anybody knows golf is a pretty good amateur player. And I was in that case for a number of years. Then as the kids started to come, I played less golf and less golf and less golf to the point that I would sometimes go a year and maybe play once or twice a year. Well, recently, my brother Dermot encouraged me. I've been a member at this club here in San Diego for 15 years, never really play very often and didn't play any competitive golf at all. So he has got a bunch of buddies he's hanging out with. They're a bunch of characters and they invite me to come play golf. I said, okay. And sure enough, I stand up on the first tee and in my mind, I'm going to say this went on for about 10 rounds of golf. That every time I stood on the first tee, I still saw myself as this one handicap. Well, I haven't put in the time. I haven't put in the work. I haven't put in the practice. And all I'm left with is the story. So I stand up on the first tee, and I'm next, you know, I'm jackknifing the ball all over the place, and this and that and the other. And I found myself telling my playing partners this story about how good I used to be years ago. And then it created even more tension for me. The dynamic there of I did it before I can do it again, it's a blessing on one hand. But on the other hand, I go, okay. That guy was 25 years of age. You have to decide who you're going to be today. Now, here's the good news. You used to be able to play golf well, but that guy's gone. I cannot believe how hard it was for something like the game of golf. I'm not trying to make my living at it. I'm not trying to win tournaments. But all of a sudden, it was so hard to turn the page on the memory of I did it before, of who I was. To get to the point, okay, just hold in your heart that you used to be able to play this game, but who are you today? And who can you become today? And what did it force me to do? Go get lessons. Go get a coach. There it is. And just like we do at Buffini Company, I got this coach, and here's what he did. No judgment. All he did was appraise the situation. Here's my numbers, and there's a little science behind that and all the techniques of a track man device. And then here's the video. So here's the video. Here's the numbers. Here's your results. And that's the same thing that a coach at Buffini Company does. They're not caught up in your story. They're not caught up in your past. Here's where you are today. And how can we turn the page and go do it and become who you're supposed to be now, not what you were or what you had? It's important that I still know, okay, I'm a golfer. I just doesn't feel like one right now. I know how to play this game. I just can't quite do it right now. I'm going to go rebuild. I'm going to restart, but I'm starting over. And who am I? in 2021 as a golfer, as opposed to who I was back in 1985. So I did it before I can do it again. And then the other part is if they can do it, I can do it. Being around people who are getting it done, seeing people who are successful, connecting with them. And I'm doing that with my golf game. Maybe you can do that in your business. Maybe you can do it in your finances. Maybe you can do it with your family. We did it, Beverly and I, we sought out couples that we really admired and we admired their families. And we just, we kind of invite ourselves over for dinner. We'd kind of ask them questions and spend time with them. You know, this is doable. We can do this. And as I finish up here today on the social proofing side of things, I want you to know that ultimately the stories are really the big thing that break out of social proofing. And we have so many stories here at Buffini Company that speak to influence because facts tell, stories sell. You really want to influence your customers? Tell them a story of someone who was in their shoes. You know, I met someone who was just like you. You know, I met someone who was buying their first house, and here's what they were going through. I met someone who was trying to move up and buy another home, and they were just like you. Whatever your product is, whatever your service is, whatever you do for a living, people need to see themselves in someone else's story. And you can tell the stories of people who went through the same fears or apprehensions and had a great success. I haven't told this story in many, many years, 
I won't tell you her last name, but her first name is Sandy. And Beverly would come out and speak in the early days of the Feening Company. So we're walking through, I think it was the Arizona Convention Center down in Phoenix. It's the end of the day, been two days on stage. Bev and I have had a kind of meet and greet with people who were there. And there's a couple of staff waiting around to take us back to the airport. Bev and I are holding hands walking through the convention center. And as we're going through kind of the lobby of the convention center, there's a woman in the corner. And you can kind of hear this low, muffled kind of cry. And my bride, being the ever-in-tune person, looks over and she sees the person's got a name badge, which she was an attendee at the event. So, you know, you never want to have somebody go to your two-day event that's designed to encourage and inspire, and they're all alone crying by themselves. So Bev sees this. She's always had the heart for the person who's alone by themselves. So we're going over to offer kind of a, a listening ear, a little compassion to this gal. And she just looks up and she sees us. And rather than tell us her sad story or anything else that was going on for her, she just kind of looks us in the eye and says, I, I hope you people are who you say you are. On one hand, I was kind of taken aback. And on the other hand, I, I just knew there was a lot behind it. And my wife just quietly looks her in the eye and says, we are. And she goes, oh, thank you. I needed to hear that. I go to find this gal is a single mom of 10 children. Her husband left her high and dry, emptied their bank accounts, was a bit of a gambler. She ends up having to move to out of our local market into an area. Three of her kids are very sick, and they had to live in a dry climate. So she moves the whole family, is trying to figure out what to do for a living, and she gets into real estate. Now, it's kind of a hard business to start out in, and she had not made very, I think she made one sale. And she's considering getting into our coaching program, which is certainly not inexpensive. And she had had a conversation with her broker, who was a very committed guy. He talked about an all-in guy. And this guy said, I'm going to pay for your coaching for you, and you can pay me back when you make a bunch of sales. And she was asking us, I hope you people are who you say you are, because she was basically putting it all in. Well, I've been paid a lot for my work, and I made a lot of money. But when somebody gives you everything they have, it's a big deal. So obviously we took special interest in this gal and I would talk to her coach regularly, how she's doing, so on and so forth. And she got up and running and she took to the system like a duck to water and away she went. Well, she didn't go along with the crowd. She went with her gut. And here's the power of influence. I'm at an event maybe three years later. We're in Denver. The audiences now are much bigger. They're in the thousands. So it's not as personal. People can't see in the eye. You know, they're looking at you on a screen. And is it a show? Is it a guy that can tell some stories from stage? You get better at the prezo. Is he a little slicker now? And so we would always have a scenario where we'd have the, near the end of the event, we'd hand the mics out to the audience and let them ask whatever question they wanted. So this one gal stands up and she goes, you know, I, this all sounds just too good to be true. You know, you hear it all sounds perfect and all these people are doing this stuff and the clients love you and the business grows and I heard all these success stories, and it just all sounds too good to be true. Well, another hand goes up in the back of the room, and I almost hard to see. There's thousands of people in the room. This gal waves her hand. One of the guys runs over, hands her mic. I hadn't seen her since that day in Arizona, but it was Sandy. And she stands up, and she holds the mic, and she said, three years ago, I was just like you. And I asked this man and his wife, I hope you are who you say you are, because everything I made last year is what I'm paying to be coached. And I had a broker front me the money, and I have 10 children, and three of them are sick, and I was starting at the very bottom. 
And she goes, I might not be his biggest success story, and I'm not making a million dollars a year. But she said, I'm, I'm one of the better agents in my office now. My broker's delighted with me. I'm not a millionaire. But she said, all our bills are paid. Our home life is secured. And then she did this. She touched her blouse, and she said, and this blouse I'm wearing right now is the first new piece of clothing I've owned in five years. She goes, I don't have any debt. But she goes, I don't have much worry anymore because I'm part of this program and I'm working this system. Well, you talk about influence. First of all, it's the only time in my career on stage where I literally could not say another word. I was so just overwhelmed by the woman's courage and who she is and just the very profoundness of the moment. The audience was just sideways. And that day, without any manipulation or any more conversation, there was no great sales pitches or whatever else, Buffini and Company had, by percentage, its record sales at an event. Why? Because of the psychology of persuasion. Because, as we go through this process, someone who felt the desire to reciprocate, she'd made a huge commitment, and we'd matched her commitment. And she was social proof. She didn't go along with her crowd. She went out on her own limb. She got involved in coaching when many people would have said that was a foolish thing to do. With that, built her own success story. And that success story and her story, so heartfelt, was a massive influence. More than any speaker ever on stage, more than anything I could do. And that's why I say to you, I read this book and I thought, man, this stuff is some great stuff. There is a psychology of influence. And when the motives are pure and the intentions are right, it's fabulous. So I covered the first three points here today, reciprocity, commitment, and social proof. Join me for part two. I'm going to cover likability, leadership, and scarcity on the next episode of The Brian Buffini Show. And to finish off today, I'm going to share with you the most influential person in my life, giving you all an Irish blessing, Therese Buffini. Take it away, ma'am. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. 